I'm trying to get better at answering questions with episodes. So keep them coming, everyone. Uh, and one of my strategies I'm going to employ today is when somebody asks me a question, I'm going to try to figure out how I can build a whole show around it. Because a lot of times I type up just an email response with some information. But I found if I sit down and put together a bit of an outline and think more about in terms of a whole show, I can build it out. And what happens with that is I end up answering questions that were never even asked. And so today for today's show, I'm going to do that. And I recently got an email from May who uh, is helping to start a brand new hospice, uh, working on getting their provider number from Medicare and all the stuff that goes into that, which is a lot, which I've never done personally. Um, but I know enough about the process. Uh, but anyway, so in this email, it was a good email from May. And, but here's a section that I'm going to read to you. And she says, I always strive to maintain the values of empathy and fairness, and I am committed to begin an unwavering, to, uh, excuse me, committed to being an unwavering advocate for our team and our patients. Currently, we've encountered challenges with documentation using matrix care. The process has proven to be time consuming, and I'm reaching out to see if you have insight on how to optimize the documentation process or procedures. I would greatly appreciate any pointers or guidance you can provide. This is James Dibbon, and welcome to the Hospice Nursing Podcast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to your show. That's right. This is the only show that provides practical help for hospice nursing success. I am your host, James Dibbon with Confessions of a Hospice Nurse.net, and thank you for joining me today. Well, hey, I am real excited to bring this content to you today. Um, I So I got this question, and, and I thought a lot about it, and I'm like, I want to do, I think what I want to do is, well, I just sat down to make my notes and said, okay, James, what would be some of the main things you would want to do if you were in May's position? And I'm almost jealous of you, May for having this opportunity. And I said, in my notes, I wrote almost, <laughs> it is a, it is a big task you have in front of you. And I hope that this episode will just provide you with some ideas, some guidance maybe, and some tips and tricks as you build this. And so I, I've got two pages worth of notes. This is more notes than I've usually make for myself. So here's the thing. 
we are at four minutes for this show. And if I am still here rambling 30 minutes from now and it's 35 minutes into the show and I feel like I'm only halfway through, I am going to have to break this into two episodes. And May, I'm just going to apologize to you right now if that happens because I answer your EMR question at point five of six more towards the end. And I tried to figure out a way to move it around back to the front and it just doesn't flow well. So please forgive me if that's what's happening. This episode is released on October 15th and you will be stuck waiting a few weeks for part two, but I'm going to try to move through this, but I don't want to in the efforts of trying to keep this show, this one episode reasonable, I I don't want to skim over or race through some of this content because I think it's going to be helpful. So rather than getting off further into that rabbit trail and dragging us another five minutes down the road, I just want to get into it. And so this is going to be very clinical, which is what my listeners, what you out there want anyway, right? We don't, there's a lot I could talk about on the financial side, but that's boring, right? This is still practical help for hospice nursing success. And I need to, so, so we're going to stay on the clinical side. We're not going to get into the, uh, you know, the administrative, so to speak side of starting a new hospice. That is a different show that I really don't see myself doing anytime soon. Um, but you know, uh, when we talk about having the, this being mostly about the clinical side of things, because we have to have a very solid clinical foundation to be successful. There are two sides to the hospice coin. If we want to oversimplify it, we have the marketing and sales side and we have the clinical side and both sides have to be functioning properly for a hospice to be successful. If there is a lot of turmoil and turnover and problems on the clinical side, then it will drastically affect the marketing and sales, the, you know, the community outreach that the sales team is working on. And, and it will impact that greatly because they land referrals and then the clinical side messes it up. And it's really, the exact same problem on the other side, that if the marketing and sales team has turmoil and lots of turnover, then then there's nobody to shake the trees and you can become stagnant in your growth. And so both sides are very, very important. OK, and but what I feel like happens and what I have seen, because I've I've come along twice now, let me think twice yeah, I've come along in two different organizations as I've uh, who are a couple of years, one to two to maybe three years past their startup, and um, I what I can see happen sometimes, and I don't feel like uh, maybe other places this has happened, but but I I don't feel like that where I am right now, but you can have a lot of. I'm trying to figure out how to say this correctly. You can you can be out of balance and spend too much on one side or the other when you're coming right out of the gate and have problems. And I think that agencies can have problems 
when they spend a whole lot on the marketing side and the marketing plan, but then they skimp on the clinical team. And and I'm going to get into that just a little bit here. But if you have a lot of service failures in the first two years of your hospice, you can really, that can sink a new hospice real quick. Or if it doesn't sink them, the ownership group is having to pull more money out to put into the hospice because service failures can just really cause problems and, and with your growth and you're having to, to get more capital to keep it going. And, and so one thing that I'm going to talk about here a little bit is to make sure that you, that you're preparing, that you're treating the clinical side and the, the marketing side equally when you are funding them, that you can have this big, fancy, robust marketing plan with lots of marketers, and you're really going to saturate the community with your marketers. But if you're running on a skeleton crew for your clinical team, you could really be asking for service failures because you got a big marketing team that's shaking trees and maybe they have some connections in the community for whatever reason and a bunch of referrals are coming through, but you don't have any, you don't have full-time on-call staff or you, you're just not prepared and your nurses are working a million hours trying to keep up and they're burning out and they're flaming out quick. And so it's important that you have balance on both sides. And and we're going to talk just a little bit about some of the team members and things to consider when you're starting a new hospice. And because here's the thing, I know that you want to run lean in the beginning. um, But if you have expectations of growth, and I don't know why you would start a hospice and feel like you're, you know, I guess you can send a message with just your staffing to your team because if if you're going to have a skeleton clinical team where you just have the basics, you just have the people who are required to show up to IDT, which is your chaplain, social worker, nurse, and doctor, and maybe you're going to pull one other nurse to help with on-call or and you're going to make the on-call team swap between case managing and covering a couple of nights. I mean, we did that at one of the hospices I worked at and it was hard on my team. And I understand why we did it because we only had 22 patients. And so we're trying to manage the finances and, and, and I would just, the only thing I would point out is, listen, if you, you either believe that your team is going to grow and that your hospice is going to grow or you don't. And if you run a ridiculous skeleton crew that has your two or three nurses running themselves ragged, trying to cover all the shifts, you really are sending them a message that you actually don't believe you're going to grow. And and I really believe that 100% because I've been there and I've watched it happen. And I'm thankful that we're not doing that where I am now, that we have full-time on-call staff and my regular Monday through Friday nurses do very little on-call. They provide some backup to the primary nurse, and usually the primary nurse can handle it. And every now and then there's just a busy evening, and my my case managers are busy. <clears throat> um, so anyway, I, I want to take you through some things to consider. Ah. Sorry, I'm almost talking too fast. Some things to consider as you are building out 
this new uh, new hospice. So, May, this stuff is for you, my friend. Um, and one thing that I try to encourage people to ask themselves anytime they come up with a new idea for where we are now, um, and, and you can use this as well, is does it scale? Ask yourself, does it scale with every new idea or plan? When you're looking at implementing something or doing something new or doing something different or fixing a problem, you always have to ask yourself, does it scale? As we grow as an agency, will this idea scale? So the answer can be no. Okay, it can be no. It can say you can say no. this idea is not going to scale, but this is we're patching a hole here and we need to do it. But I think it's important to ask yourself, will it scale? Because you need to know if down the road you're going to have to scrap what you're doing right now because it was just a patch. It was just temporary. And I would argue that most of what you do when you ask yourself, does it scale? That answer needs to be yes. And instead of the 90-10 rule, maybe it's the 75-25 rule that just says 75% of what we do, we need to make sure that it will scale and 25% won't. And so here's an example of something that for May, for you, that isn't going to scale. And it's okay. And of course, that is you being a case manager and clinical director at the same time. For a brand new startup, and you're only going to have maybe five patients on, you're trying to get your Medicare license. I, for, I don't know every single detail of doing this, but I do know it's reasonable when you go to open your doors and you have zero patients to go ahead and have your clinical director also case manage. Hello. And do all the admissions and just doing everything, right? Both jobs. That's perfectly reasonable when you're trying to get your license and your Medicare number and all this stuff up and going. Okay. But you still need to ask yourself, will it scale? Will what I'm doing is scaling? Will it scale? And and being the clinical director and the case manager, the answer is no. Once you get up to, you know, seven and you're moving okay, it's time to get yourself a case manager in there, right? Um, and, and that's something you will need to decide with your ownership group, your administrator, However you want to do that, you know, at what point are we bringing in another nurse? But that's just one example. But you've got to be asking yourself, will it scale? Is this Does this idea scale as we grow? Um, and then I, I want to encourage you, May, and I just love this idea, but you get to create the culture for your hospice, for your staff, for... Um, uh, for for even the community. And I wrote in here, you will set the standard for what your hospice will look like for the entire community. You get you have a blank slate. And it's kind of like uh, my wife and I have been foster parents multiple times. And it and we also had our bio babies. And it is easier to train than it is to retrain right? The, the foster kids have some challenges, God bless them. And, and trying to retrain some better habits with those kids can be a lot of hard work. And it's the same thing with your hospice is it's easier to train than retrain. And so you have the opportunity to set what the culture is going to be like for your organization. And to me, that's very, very, very exciting. It's a very exciting thing 
to be able to create that culture. And I would encourage you to sit down with your administrator and your ownership group, depending on how hands-on or hands-off they are, or I, you know, I don't have those details from May, and that's perfectly fine, to sit down and say, what do we want our culture to look like? And, and it's real easy to have vague answers to that. Well, we just want them to feel appreciated and know that we care about them. And, and, and that's fine, but you, you got to drill down into what does it actually look like? Not these are the attitudes we want to have, but here's the processes we're going to put in place to make sure we have that healthy culture. And I'll give you some ideas because that's what I'm here for (laughs) is team first patients second. Now stay with us. We'll be right back. I have had some members at the hospice nursing community request some kind of a support group to help fight burnout. And so I have started two burnout support groups at the hospice nursing community.com just to help everybody. And so these support groups meet twice a month on the second Thursday and the second Sunday of the month. And so we're going to be doing that. And I wanted to make sure you understood or knew that these will be faith friendly support groups. And it doesn't mean they'll be preaching or anything strange like that, but I might use devotionals. I might pull something out of the Bible, maybe out of Psalms or something, but just there might be sections of the, uh, of the group that deal with matters of faith. And, and I hope that is of interest to you. Uh, it can be found in the community events, uh, section of the community. So, if you would consider joining, I think it would help you. It's going to help me. I need it, I think, as much as anybody does. So join a burnout support group at thehospicenursingcommunity.com. I, I think nurses listening to this might go, yeah, yeah, nurses first, and then the patient. Um, and maybe administrators or Hospice owners might listen to this and go, mm, patients first, team second. Here's what I'll submit to you. It should be really hard to tell which one is which, okay? Uh, maybe we can meet there. And my office, nurse, team first, period, end of story, team first. What do I need to do with, how do I help my team? What does my team need? Not, well, that's their job. My team knows they can shoot me over a message when they're having a long, hard day and have a lot of visits, and they can send something over and say, hey, can you get on in Clara and send a script over to this pharmacy for me, please? Done. Done. I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, You know, do I have a lot of stuff to do? Yes. But my team first, plain and simple. My nurses reach out, to, and they, they don't take advantage. None of them do. If they reach out and ask me for something, it's because they need it. It's not because they're dodging their work. If you have somebody who's dodging work and sending you stuff all day, and you're like, I don't think they know how to actually use Inclara. I think that's the problem. But that's not it. My nurses don't reach out all the time, but when they do, I know it's important. And I really, truly believe this, that the more staff-centric your office is, the patients will get good care because the nurses feel appreciated. They feel loved. They feel supported. Um, I I can tell sometimes when I have somebody who's having a hard day 
through maybe a response to an email or something. And I will reach out to them. I'll call and go, Hey, are you doing okay? And find out, you know, what's going on, you know, and you know, I have the policy, uh, that is, um, uh, now I forget what it is. <laughs> Listen, validate, educate, you know, communicate. Uh, and, and I, you know, and I would just encourage everybody to keep using that, uh, as a way to really be able to check into your staff and make sure they're doing okay. But we've got to create a culture where our team feels valued and cared for, and they don't feel like pawns to be moved around on a chessboard because they pick up on that real fast. They wake up in the morning, a nurse wakes up in the morning and she's got a bunch of visits that she had never planned to make because somebody called in or something happened in the office and we didn't bother to even reach out to her and let her know we were going to need her help today. And, you know, how's that treating people? And I realize you might not have a choice, but to put visits on a, a nurse's schedule, you can still call them and get their buy-in on it and reach out to them and say, hey, you know, Nurse Angie, that's one of my nurses, Nurse Angie is out today with a sick kid, and can you pick up one of her visits that's over kind of closer to your area? And they always say yes, but to wake up and have two extra visits on your your plate that you never planned on and didn't know about coming? No, I just don't think that's how we want to treat our staff. Um, and so, uh, and and I, I think it's going to be important to sit down, May, with your leadership team and begin to strategize at what point. And, and, and your email didn't give some of these details, so I'm, I'm talking to you, but I'm talking to the hospice world at large. At what point do you have your full-time on-call staff? And like I said, one of my previous agencies that I worked for, we didn't. We had a case manager and an LPN and a part-time case manager who did not help with on-call. And so the case manager and the LPN rotated two days a week of being on-call. And that was hard. One of them had to do Wednesday, Thursday, and the other one did Monday, Tuesday. And so they ran a real chance of being up all night, two days in a row, and it wore thin on them, and who could blame them? And I went out and helped a lot and said, no, you've got to. You, you can't you can't be on call tonight. I'll do it. Um, but you should sit down and depending on may what your um, you know, what things look like there for you for on call. Uh, you know, I might be talking, I might be talking to you and you might say, Hey, we have full-time on call staff. It's all just covered. You know, we've got somebody that works Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights. And then we have a nurse who works all weekend. And so it's covered. And, and honestly, with a startup hospice, I think you should be there. Are you? Is it going to cost you more money up front? Yes. But are you trying to build a culture or are you just trying to build a money machine? Like you got to ask yourself as an owner, you know, are we going to provide the resources that we need right out of the gate to be successful and not get overly focused on the money? We're here for the long game. Hospice is the long game. I've said that in so many different ways. Okay. But when are you going to have a full-time on-call staff? At what point can you have an admissions nurse? At what point can you have an additional social worker and chaplain? And it might seem silly to sit down and plan that out in the beginning, but these are questions that everybody else who comes into your agency, are, they are going to ask you these things. 
they are going to want to know what your plans are there. And it should be it should be a consistent message with you and your administrator when they come in. Everybody should just know, well, when we get to 35, we can do this. When we get to 50, we can do this. When we get to 80, we can do this. And and even and you can give them the caveat. This is the plan and this is what we think we'll be able to do at these numbers. And we can revisit that when we get there. Um, but but I think part of leadership is being able to just put those things out there and be held accountable. Like your staff isn't just accountable to you as a leader. You are accountable to them as well. So I want to talk about the importance of building an orientation program. And I think many companies come up with a quick and dirty orientation that's like, well, they get these three. These, they get a day with HR, and then on this day they ride with this person. On this day they ride with this person, and on this day they ride with this person. Yay! That's our orientation program, and I don't like it. Um, and as you know, I've spent a lot of time where I am right now, revamping our entire orientation program, and I I really think. Um, I think with our orientation program, it should be something that is fairly robust in the beginning, and it's something that is ever-changing. It's like a live, living being that we're taking care of. And I have pulled things out of our orientation program, and I have put things back into our orientation program uh, as time goes on, as I build something new. Like, just for a quick example... Originally, when I created the orientation program, the part for my nurses, my RNs, included a an admissions checklist. Here's the checklist when you go do an admission, everything that needs to be done. Well, I have pulled that checklist off of the orientation program because I have revamped our admissions. The referral all the way through the admission and when the admission is complete. Every step of the way has been completely rebuilt, and so I have been able to pull that checklist out because now the checklist goes into our admission binders. We have home binders and we have facility binders. So now when a new nurse comes along, we give them one facility binder and one home binder for new admissions, and now they have that. So not only do they have their orientation binder, but they have a binder for um, for, uh, for admits at home versus admits for, uh, facilities. So it just, the orientation program and the materials that we're handing to the nurses changes week in and week out. When we identify a hole in what our staff knows, we go ahead and I build something f- to fill that hole. And then I also add that to our orientation program, which is basically a shared, um, shared drive that has everything in it. And so, <clears throat> May, I want to help you out with building your orientation program, okay? So if you'll send me an email to james at confessionsofahospicenurse.net, and you know it because we've already exchanged some emails, but if you're interested, just email me, and I want to give you a free membership to the hospice nursing community, and I have some trainings. I have two trainings in there that I think you could use to really help build your culture if you like them. It is the Influence and Trust 
training. Uh, it's about just building trust and and in how important it is to build influence and trust with your patients, meeting their psychosocial needs. And I would really encourage you to make every new employee go through this training because it's what I do. And it's really easy to present. I have all the PowerPoint slides and you can watch it and you can download it free of charge to you only may one time only right now. Sorry. Um, but I think it's going to help you. So I want to help you with your orientation program and I will give you some of the stuff that I've created that um, is kind of generic, like any hospice could use it. So I want to give you all this stuff. If you find it interesting, it's what I'm using. I just created one. I put together a packet just yesterday for one of my, for a new nurse who's starting after I go on vacation here and I can't be there, but I have her whole orientation packet all put together. And I want to help you do this may for your organization. So uh, just give me an email so I can send you the link. Um, so moving right along, uh, and this is another reason the orientation program is important is because you keep or lose your staff, all of them, your entire team, in the first four weeks of their employment. And I, I truly believe that. I truly believe that a strong start, it's the same way with bringing in new patients you keep or lose them in the first month based on your, the way you go and see them, the, you know, how often you see them, just that, you know, that consistent repeatable process of bringing in new patients and taking care of them. You really keep or lose them in the first four weeks. And it's the same thing with your staff. You keep or lose them in the first four weeks. Now, does that mean that they're going to quit two or three or four weeks in? No. What I mean by that is if you don't have a strong start that really provides them with as many tools as you possibly can in the first four weeks, you run a high risk of them burning out in the next three to six months because now the training that you're trying to give them has been very disjointed. You've missed a lot of things. Maybe they don't actually know how to use some of the apps that you've assumed they learned during their orientation process, just different things like that. So I really feel like, you know, you, you're going to win, you're going to keep or lose all of your staff within the first four weeks based on the quality of the onboarding that you have. So I believe a good orientation program has a minimum of two weeks totally planned out. And and it doesn't mean it has to be complicated. The first day, I think there's a lot going on there when I look back over my orientation program. But so much of the orientation program is the, uh, you know, the, the handouts, the instructions that you're able to give them. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So not every, but not every minute is planned out, but every day is planned out. And I think a, a, an experienced hospice nurse should be good with two to three weeks of orientation and a brand new hospice nurse, a nurse who's never done hospice before should probably have about four weeks with a mentor to help them understand the philosophy of care, to help them understand some of the challenges that you're going to face. And there might be some hospices listening to this right now that think four weeks is silly. Uh, I know that they are. I know there's some hospices out there that have six weeks, nine weeks. I mean, they have these really robust orientation programs 
And my guess is those hospices are huge and that they can spread those patients out. If they lose somebody, they can spread those patients out over lots of other case managers. But I, most hospices can't do that. And because we are really, hospices are really great at waiting until they don't have, until they're desperate to try to hire they just run their new nurses or chaplains or whoever through this gauntlet that practically tears them apart. And they get basically at the end of their first week, they're expected to go out and be a successful hospice nurse when they've never done hospice. You know, I've had short orientations, um, but at after eight years in hospice, I didn't need more than a week or so. I really just didn't because the experience is just there. So you, you've got to have a, a feel for who you're sitting in front of when you're planning out their orientation. Um, we have a nurse coming right now that we're going to have pretty two solid weeks of orientation. And then at the end of that second week, we're going to reevaluate and see what we need to do because she has experience, right? Um and and as I mentioned, every single time you fix something, you're adding it to your orientation program. Like we just added the approved abbreviations to our orientation binder that all the nurses get. So they'll they can wander through that thing. Very exciting reading. Very, very nice material. Not boring. Yuck. But it's important. And we have it there for them. So there's no questions. Hey, you know, check your abbreviation thing. Because <laughs> I've seen some weird abbreviations. I haven't even looked at ours fully. I just know our Quapi nurse got it done, and we scanned it and said, "Yeah, we think we're good." Because I mean, think about it—it's three, four pages back to back. It's a lot. Um. So okay, so I'm doing good on time. Hopefully, this has been useful so far. So I'm very happy. So here we are, Bay. Here we are to your question, and. You asked about matrix care, and I loved matrix care. Uh, thought it was a fantastic EMR, but i i only uh, I only used it for five months, and and I don't use it now, and so I don't remember it well enough to give you any specific pointers, if that makes sense. Um, but I can tell you what I would do. I can well, I can tell you what we did two jobs ago when we converted over to Matrix Care, and I thought it was just a complete stroke of genius by our um, by our leadership team. Uh, my administrator and clinical director got together, and they just knocked it out of the park with this. And so I want to pass on this information because I am in the middle of doing it right now. Okay. So this is very hard work. This is just going to be very time consuming and it could take a while depending on how busy you are to do this. But I think this is, this is part of that foundation. This is a part of that culture. And this is a very important part of your orientation. And I'm doing it right now with our, my EMR so that I can add it to the orientation packet as well. But you need to go, you ready for this, May? Is everybody ready for this? This is hard work. You need to go line by line and screen by screen through each assessment type and create what I am calling tip sheets. Tip sheets. Okay? Uh, you know, I would call them matrix care tip sheets. 
And what you are doing is you are getting rid of all the I don't know what to do moments for your nurses whenever they are trying to go through matrix care, through all the different ad, um, screens that you have on your tablet there. And, and this is hard work. And I would encourage you to do it with your administrator or a compliance person. I mean, you can do it alone, and that's fine if that's just the only option you have. But, you know, I, I, like, the, I like the saying that there is wisdom in the counsel of many. I am not a big fan of just doing stuff in a vacuum because you just need more people involved and because you can work your way through the questions that you have. I, I am really starting to believe that lack of information on what to do it with each screen in an EMR is one of the reasons it slows everybody down because they're just sitting there staring at it going, what am I supposed to click here? You know, if I click... There's respiratory problems. All this stuff explodes. All this new stuff pops up, and I'm going off into rabbit trails. And <clears throat> what needs to happen here is that by going through your EMR and going through every visit type and every single screen, you can begin to recognize the duplicate work that's in there. And you can go, wait a minute. We just answered that over there. I do know that in matrix care, if you create your care plan correctly and make sure that it links to an actual assessment. Okay. This is something that just popped into my head. And I remember this about matrix care and I liked it. You create your care plans and they link to your assessments. So when you are documenting on your patient, if I remember right, we went, we instructed everybody to go to the care plans first and document your care plans and we would not let anybody create a care plan that did not link to the assessment so that once they were done documenting against all their care plans, then when they went to do the actual assessment, they would swipe to screens that were already completed because, well, they were COPD and they had a respiratory assessment. And so they, 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 or they had a respiratory care plan. Sorry, lost my train of thought. And so what they would do is we would document our, you know, the three or four care plans that we have, including the COPD one for respiratory. And then when we went and did our assessment, we, the respiratory part was done and we would skip. And I think a lot of mistakes that agencies do is that they're not making sure that their care plans link to an actual assessment or they're starting with the assessment and then doing the care plans after. And if I remember right, stuff doesn't flow over quite the same. Um, but May, part of your free membership will be you can have the template that I'm using right now. So right now, I am working on CanTime. We use CanTime here, uh, our EMR. And I have, um, I have created for the... At the comprehensive assessment, the admission assessment, it has, I don't have it in front of me, but it probably has eight or 12, 10 tabs. And then each tab has a ton of stuff that you got to scroll down through. And there's a couple of tabs that are very involved, the hospice eligibility tab, and then the structure and process of care. And I have gone through that entire assessment with my Quapi nurse and we have detailed out what to do in every single section 
what it means, what it's for. We detail the page that we create care plans for. So I've done this, and it probably took me 10 to 12 hours <clears throat> to create the can time tip sheets that I'm doing just for the comprehensive assessment. But my nurses are starting to use it, and I three-hole punch it and put it in one of those folders that has the three-hole punch in it, you know, the paper folders. And they can lay that out right next to them, and it mirrors what is going on in their assessment. And I love it. So, And here's the thing. This is going to be a product that I'm going to add to my community is my can time tip sheets, my can time EMR tip sheets. And, and you can use this template, Kay, uh, and I, I'll get it to you. When you get, if you get into the community and I'll, you know, you and I can do a couple of zoom meetings and I can show you what I did with it. And I think you can use it. It's very simple. I mean, I, I don't, I'll tell you all what it is because it's just, that's how I roll. It, it is a spreadsheet pasted into a word document and it only has, it, I label each tab. It'll just say, um, you know, it'll say hospice eligibility tab and then each section is its own cell. The left side is the name of the section, and the right side is what to do in it. And I use a lot of red text when I'm giving examples. Um, <clears throat> but I will be creating some, I'm working on the can time, and I'm doing every single type of nursing assessment, every type of death visit will have a can time tip sheet. And so that's eventually actually going to be a product that I will provide out of my community. And so if your agency uses can time and you're interested in something like this, that's already done, just email me James at confessions of a hospice nurse.net to get on the list. And hopefully here in the next four to six weeks, I'm going on vacation here real soon. When this podcast episode releases, on October 15th, it's actually, I'll be on vacation and, and publish itself. But anyway, just email me, james at confessionsofahospicenurse.net. If your agency is using can time or getting ready to use can time and you want all the tip sheets that I'm creating and we'll be more than happy to get on Zoom together so I can show you what I did and you can have access to it. So there, quick advertisement. Um <clears throat> The next thing for the deep dive on your EMR is um, get on there, get with your compliance nurse, and review your EMR for duplicated or busy work, all right? And and I'm huge on this. And remember when I had Shelly Henry on here, the four hospice nurses, and we looked at the survey, one of the biggest complaints, I mean, she gave me one of the books, and I have it right here in front of me that she uh, it takes with her and, and has all of the results from the survey. When you look at the freehand stuff, it all says the um, it all says the same thing: excessive documentation, excessive documentation, improper, too much documentation that is redundant, excessive documentation, documentation. I mean, it's ridiculous how much everybody is so frustrated by how much duplicate documentation and me and my quappy nurse, we went round and round on a few things that I'm like, no, that is duplicated. That's silly. At one point in can time on the hospice eligibility screen, there is two sections that ask the same dang thing. And originally we were told 
well, you need to put the same thing in each spot, but type it out differently. And I'm like, what? No. And we got together with another uh, compliance person who used to be a surveyor and has all this knowledge. And she said, listen, she said, you can copy and paste within the same note, within the same visit, within your same documentation. And so we're allowing our nurses to fill out one section and copy that and paste it into another section that's asking the same question. So I really have my eye out for any and all duplicated work. Like, no, we're not doing it. We are not. We already typed up an assessment on respiratory there in matrix care or can time. And within the same visit, there's another place where you can type it all up again, you know, or you're expected to or whatever. And I'm like, no, we're getting away from that because that is what is bogging people down. And I think the more that we can really understand and know, I think every agency in America should have somebody who sits down who is not a freaking lawyer because you can't get those, you can't document enough for an attorney and have them sit down and go through your EMR page by page, line by line, visit type by visit type, and really identify what you want your nurses to put where. Because I really believe that the confusion of not knowing what to do with the screen can really bog down and burn out a nurse and make them want to just close their tablet and leave. And that can really contribute to them spending the entire evening at home documenting. Okay. And finally, (laughs) I made it to the end. Point number six, be a brave leader, May. Be a brave leader. And and here, I'm going to identify that for you. And this is the hard work of being a leader, all right? But but this is what I have learned in really 25 years of leadership on and off, okay? Stay with us. We'll be right back. If you are new to hospice or considering hospice, then in September of 2022, I created the website for you. I created thehospicenursingcommunity.com. What started out as a simple community has become a large library of video trainings. The hospicenursingcommunity.com now has over 45 video coaching sessions covering subjects such as bedside charting, the hospice comfort kit, the four levels of care, how to interview for a hospice job, and so much more. I just completed a seven-part series for case managers, and I'm getting ready to start a series on the PPS scale. The hospicenursingcommunity.com is available for just $4.99 per month for full access. Head over to the hospicenursingcommunity.com for hope, help, and encouragement. And remember, hospice nursing doesn't get easier. You just get better at it. So let's get better at it together. A good leader takes the blame for failures and gives the team credit for successes. Now, what you do one-on-one with somebody who is struggling or the conversations you may have behind closed doors with your administrator regarding a staff member who's having issues or problems, that's another thing, but publicly. But agency-facing, when your agency fails, you take a look at yourself 
first. What could I have done differently? What part of our orientation program needs to be fixed? But then when it's successful, if I'm on a Zoom meeting and and my somebody who is um, in leadership says, James, your team, you, you know, you're having all this success over there. What's the secret? You will always hear me say, my team. Well, but what about what about you, James? You know, what's your big thing? No, it's my team. I have a good team. Okay. Well, then why did you have this problem over here? What you know, we have this service failure over here. What's the problem? You know what? I'm gonna look at that and and I'll take responsibility for that, for that shortcoming or that service failure and take a look at I'm just gonna look at myself first. Now maybe Maybe it, it was in the orientation program and this person didn't pay attention or whatever, but just a good leader will give the team credit for successes and look internally first when there's failures. And, and this is just a bit of a pet peeve of mine that I've seen over the years and I hate it. So I'm throwing another one on here for you. Never give bad news over email or text messages. Be brave enough to call and accept some of the responsibility. So I had to do that this week, okay? Um, because we had we had several new to working out in the field nurses and staff members who've joined here recently, and they were doing their mileage wrong. They were giving themselves full mileage from home to their first visits. And some of these were 30, 40 miles because it was a long way or, um, and, and I recognized right away, Hey, if 25% of our staff is doing this wrong, then it's on us. We need to look at that for first four weeks of orientation and figure out how do we need to fix that? So they understand. And obviously we need to, I'm going to type up something that talks about how mileage in hospice works when you're a field employee, and I'm going to integrate it back into our orientation program. But I called each staff member that it looked like was doing it wrong. And I did that because I did not want them getting blindsided by this big, grumpy old man email. Hey, it's come to my attention. I just love it when it starts out. It has come to our attention that some of you are doing your mileage wrong and giving yourself and I just hate that stuff. Effective immediately. Man, don't start emails out like that. So I called all six people that I felt like were doing this wrong and reassured them that nobody's in trouble, that I've had to call six different people, so this is on us, not you, and I really apologize that this got taught to you wrong or missed or whatever, and we need to rectify it, okay? And so when you have failures by staff to follow procedure or they've been doing something wrong, you got to look at yourself first. A good leader says, okay, let's look at our onboarding. Let's look at our training program here. How did we miss this? What is going on? You start there. Always start with yourself. And that's just, that's just the responsibility of being a, a good leader. And if, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't want to have to confront people over the phone, because there was going to be a couple of folks who were going to be a little bit unhappy because it was going to affect their checks. 
And they were totally cool. Both of them were totally cool. But there was still some pushback there. And it would have been easier for me to just type up this big email. It has come to my attention and somewhere in there effective immediately. I just didn't use any of that phraseology. First, I called each and every one of them. So when they got the email, it didn't surprise them. Okay. And, but yet the documentation is there because the email did get sent to everybody, but I talked to them all first and, and I can't stand trying to communicate important things, big changes or corrections of your staff. I don't like, um, I don't like that kind of stuff being communicated via email or text message because I think the message you, you can, it's easy to get offended or upset or feel like you're being attacked than it is for James to call you up and go, Hey, listen, uh, listen, um, you know, Betty, there's something I've realized that we have failed in leadership because I've got several staff who don't understand how to do this. And so I'm calling everybody and you're just, your name's on the list. And I just wanted to chat with you about this and make sure you kind of understood how this was all going to work. And, and, and I handled it that way and the calls went great. Some of the folks kind of explained to me what had happened and they were actually doing it correctly all along. Um, because I, <clears throat> I didn't read our EMR correctly, or I didn't know for sure where they lived. And, but there were several that were doing it wrong and it's not even their fault. It's totally our fault. And in the email, I said that twice. I said, we in leadership have totally let you down. And now we're having to correct it and it's going to affect some of you and your mileage reimbursement. And I am so sorry. That is totally on us. It's just on us. We blew it. We ruined it. We screwed it up. And now we're back to fix it. And I'm going to create something to go in the orientation program so nobody else has to face that again. And, and I feel like it went over well. So May, there is 51 minutes to answer tips and tricks on your EMR. (laughs) But I think it's a piece of a bigger pie. And I think you deserved more than just a quick email that to, to answer that question. But I feel like this is material that is going to help a lot of different nurses and organizations out there. So there it is. Sorry, I'm having seasonal allergies. Hey, listen, would you take some time to check out the hospice nursing community? I know I have my little commercials in here now. I am still looking for more feedback from you out there, and I really have not got a lot for my episode I want to do that is about, um, that is, that is hospice nurse story. So keep those coming. You can send me links, YouTube, LinkedIn. Just wherever you want to send me, however you want to send me a video or audio, I would love to have it, and I will play it on the air. Um, and be sure to visit confessionsofahospicenurse.net for uh, all of my other content, or you can call or leave a voicemail at 816-834-9191. You never know. I might call you back. <laughs> Whew. Hey, listen. Don't forget, hospice nursing doesn't get easier You just get better at it. And let's get better at it together.
This has been episode 42 of the Hospice Nursing Podcast for October 15th, 2023.